As Alex read, we're covering the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John this morning, and the title for you is simply this, The Crucifixion of the Son of God. This is the first part of two parts, the second of which we'll look at with John chapter 19 next week. But this is a pretty long and detailed passage. It's going to come off a bit like a lecture. Uh, I'm going to apologize to begin with, and we're going to bypass any sort of introduction and get to our first point this morning because there are, is a lot of uh, material and details that I'm going to share with you. Three simple points, the arrest, the denial, and the examination. The arrest, the denial, and the examination. So if you look back at the text with me, with your eyes as I read aloud, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and the disciples entered, so on and so forth. You already have the background there. John begins chapter 18 with a description of Jesus and the disciples crossing the Kidron Valley, which is just east of the city of Jerusalem, to a garden that would be the Garden of Gethsemane, a garden that... I'm sure you are somewhat familiar with. It says Jesus often met with his disciples there. Jesus often met with his disciples there. The comfort and privacy of this place must have been significant for Jesus and his disciples because apparently he frequented this place with his disciples, spending quality time with them there, removed from the busyness of the world. But Judas, the betrayer, he exploits this comfort, and he exploits this security. You may recall from the Gospel of Matthew that Judas, by this point, has already struck up a deal with the religious leaders. He feels like Jesus is a disappointment. I hope you don't feel the same way. I hope you don't feel that you're waiting on Jesus to deliver something for you that Jesus never promised to deliver. Well, that's, G- that's Judas. Judas is, is seeing Jesus like a disappointment at this, t- at this moment. He wants a relief from the political occupation of Rome. Most argue that Judas thought that this incident would be the incident to provoke Jesus to lead that insurrection that Judas so desperately wanted. So it says in Matthew 26, verses 14 and 15, you can make a note of this in your outline, then one of the twelve, those whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. In John chapter 18, we see the unfolding of that exact plot. And Judas has brought the Romans to the place where Jesus is, the garden. It says that Judas bought, or excuse me, Judas brought a procured band of soldiers. The Greek is spira. It's the word that we get spiral from. It means band or grouping. Literally, it signified a cohort, which was a tenth of a legion in the Roman army. 
It consisted of 600 soldiers. Now, whether the entire cohort went to arrest Jesus or not in this late-night operation isn't the point. The point is, whether it was 600 or not, there are a lot of soldiers arresting Jesus this night. And in addition to the Roman soldiers who are there, we have also, John chapter 18 says, officials from the high priest and a group from the Pharisees. Jesus leads off the conversation. He says, whom do you seek? Obviously, there were there for Jesus. The question is more rhetorical than anything, and everyone knew it, but this question is revealing, if not convicting. The answer is, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what we get here in the text. And Jesus says, I am he. But literally in the Greek, church, it is not I am he. It's just I am. And if you look down at the text here in verse 6, it says, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You see, you probably recall the importance of the I am statements if you've been with us as we've progressed through the Gospel of John. It's a phrase or a formula that Jesus uses to identify himself with the Father. When Jesus says, I am, Jesus is saying, I am divine. I am the second person of the Trinity, and I possess divine power as such. So when he says, I am, John says that the cohort and the Pharisees and the officials that came from the high priest, they all drew back and fell backward on their rumps. This was a move on Jesus' part to say, I am meek, but I am not weak. To show strength enough to tell his captors that he wasn't immediately intimidated by them, but he was humble enough to trust the will of his Father and his Father's eternal plan. Note how he says it again in verse 8. He's not letting up on announcing who he is. Church, say amen if you're listening. Just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should do that something. Strength and ability aren't just words describing what you can do. Strength and ability are words that also describe the self-control you possess to keep yourself back from doing what you could do. Jesus has the strength and ability to do something serious here, and he demonstrates it by simply saying, I am and knocking down everybody who's come for him. But he stops there. He trusts his father's plan, and he trusts his father's purpose. But alas, not everyone in this episode is there. There is another person who is there who isn't necessarily thinking that way, and his name is Peter. 
Peter pulls out his knife, which was not uncommon for Jews to carry at that time, particularly if they were zealots, extremists, people who were holding closely to maybe what we would call their Second Amendment right to carry. He pulled out his knife, and he takes a whack at this guard's ear, and he cuts it off. Jesus immediately says to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Luke's gospel says that Jesus immediately picks up the man's ear and places it back on his head and heals him. Not incidentally, Luke was a physician. So I think it's interesting that the only person that accounts that portion of the event is the doctor in the group. Luke twenty two fifty one. 51 even says that Jesus scolded Peter. No more of this! Jesus says, and he touches the servant's ear and heals him. John says in verse 11, the servant's name was Malchus. I have no idea why. Except to say that the Gospels were written in a historical context. This is not Homer's Odyssey. What we have here in the Bible is not the adventures of Hercules. What we have here is a historical record of events that happened in our three-dimensional universe. So when John says the servant's name is Malchus, I think he's saying, if you don't believe me, go ask Malchus. Every time God puts a historical time a geographical location, or a personal name in his account. He's doing it because, as Herman Bavick says, all truth is God's truth. You can verify this. Go check. Go ask him if this is the way it happened. And then when he tells you that's exactly the way it happened, you better believe. Amen? Hope you got insurance on that phone. Secondly, denial. Denial. We saw the arrest. That's what took place now. Now we're going to look at denial. And we're going to jump around here a little bit because John sort of breaks up Peter's denial with some other incidences. So you're just going to have to stay with me. Look at verse 12. It says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas because he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man would die for the nation. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. It's probably John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, this is John, I think, referring back to himself, who was known to the high priest, he went back out and he spoke to the servant, what? Girl. This is important, I think. Servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Is it okay if I bring this guy in? Yeah, 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 you can bring him in. The servant girl at the door said, yeah, 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 but you can bring him in, but let me ask him a question first. 
you also are one of this man's disciples, aren't you? Peter said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire, which I think is significant because it's not a wood fire. Charcoal is hot, but it doesn't glow, right? A wood fire emanates light. So we're still in a setting here where it's dark, or at least darker, but it's cold enough for a fire. So put a pin in that. Don't forget. The officers had made a charcoal fire. Why? Because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about the disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I've spoken openly to the world. I have taught in the synagogues. And in the temple, where all Jews come together, I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, I'm just going to paraphrase this. You've got something coming at you, brother. (laughs) Annas then said to, or sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then we have another incident of Peter again being questioned and denying being a disciple of Jesus. Now, the denial. Next, in the progression of this episode, we see, as I've mentioned, the denial, and of course, the denial of Peter. We, we know this, right? If you have any familiarity with the gospel, with the, the, the consequences of, of the disciples, their decisions, their following Jesus after his arrest, you know that Peter is the guy who is known for denying Jesus three times. But first, it's incredibly important to note what's happening behind the scenes. While Peter's outside, obviously with a small gang of people who have gathered around, not only out of curiosity, but because they work the grounds at which the high priest lives. Jesus is undergoing a secret hearing held by the Sanhedrin. A court of Jewish leaders who decide on important matters. This court is hearing, or the hearing of this court, excuse me, has about two to three stages. First, Jesus is taken to Annas, the father of Caiaphas, who was the high priest of that year. We might think of Annas as sort of high priest emeritus. This formality might have been simply to show a semblance of propriety and legal procedure because what they're doing is not permissible. Looking again at verse 19, it says the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus said, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and temples. 
etc., etc. Jesus essentially says, why are you asking me now? I've always taught in public. If you have any questions, round up some witnesses and ask them what I said. This is a deuteronomical requirement. This is found in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 19.15, the word of God reads this, Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Matthew 26, verse 60, though, says that when this incident was taking place, Matthew says, they hired many false witnesses. You see, they're building their case against Jesus, but they're doing it illegally. They know they don't have a case because Jesus has always taught in public, unashamedly, unreservedly, and he has done so to the glory of his Father and the good of all those who would hear because anyone who would follow him would be in his Father's kingdom and considered a disciple. And this was exasperating and frustrating to the Pharisees. William Barclay writes this, one curious feature of legal procedure in the Sanhedrin was that the man involved was held to be absolutely innocent and indeed until the evidence of the witnesses had been stated and confirmed. The argument about the case could only move forward when the testimony of the witnesses was given and confirmed. That is the point of the conversation. Jesus, in that incident, was reminding him that he had no right to ask him anything until the evidence of witnesses had been taken and found to agree. That's why he's getting hit. Because Jesus is calling him to recognize the impropriety of these proceedings. When Jesus is steadfast before the high priest and that court, the most authoritative people in Israel at that time, John juxtaposes that with another story. And that other story is the episode that is happening simultaneously, namely, Peter's denial of Jesus. Jesus is standing his ground and fighting the good fight in front of the most intimidating people in Israel at the time. And meanwhile, Peter's just outside denying Jesus in front of some people who are really of no report at all whatsoever. Jesus is inside holding strong in the face of great intimidation and threat while Peter is outside buckling under the pressure of this simple question. Aren't you a disciple of Jesus? And to add insult to injury, these are not just big, burly men. One of them is a servant girl. And Peter's a fisherman. I don't know if you know any fishermen. They're not wildly, you know, intimidated by just anything. It's like, you know, think about it. steel toe boot, this is a construction worker, you know? This guy's rough around the edges. His profession was that of fishing. How could he, under threat 
of a question by just a girl answered dishonestly. I think, it's a, I think there's a couple things here that we, need to, that we need to consider. Peter's warming himself for one thing. It's in the continuous tense, which means he didn't leave the fire. He stayed at the fire because, as John has already said, it's a cold night. All the servants are gathered around, and they're, they're asking him, Hey, aren't you, uh, aren't you a disciple? By the way, I find it kind of interesting that Jesus is going through what he's going through, right? We focus on the cross. We're going to get there. But he's already been up all night. And not only has he been up all night, but it's cold. I can assure you they are not loaning him a jacket. They've already insulted him. They've already struck him. And it's so cold that Peter is standing next to the enemy, as it were, to warm himself by the fire. Forget about the cross for a second. We're going to get to that next week. But look at the quote-unquote inconveniences that Jesus endured on the way to his cross. And we can't get some people to church on time. We're going to get to the cross, don't worry. That's next week. The magnitude of what Jesus did for the world is immeasurable. And we're going to get to that, get to that and it's going to blow your mind and blow your spirit. And you're going to go, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But before we get to that, can we get to church on time? Can we get to church? Oh, man, what can I think of that's more important today than going to church? While my Lord, the night of his betrayal, was up for 24 hours in a night so cold that his disciples were willing to stand next to the enemy just to get some warmth from a fire, and we can't get people in church. It wasn't about the cold. It wasn't about the inconvenience. I think he was warmed in his spirit with a passion that was the fire of God. You see, Peter needed the fire because Peter was running cold. I think Jesus was driven and impassioned by the plan of God, his father's plan, which he had resolved to do, and he was willing to lose a night of sleep to do for you and for me what we could not do for ourselves. I love what Peter says so many years later in 1 Peter 3.18. He died for us once, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he could bring us to God. What if Jesus decided to go to bed that night? What if Jesus decided to go, man, I'm tired. It's late. These disciples are ornery. They won't listen. Half the time, they don't understand what I'm teaching. I'm just going to bed. What if Jesus did that thing that so many heretics say he did, which is throw up his hands and go marry Mary Magdalene and have a couple kids? 
What if Jesus decided to do that? I could tell you what, he'd be, what, what would happen. If Jesus had decided to do that, I wouldn't be standing here. I'd be at home getting my extra hour back. Amen? I'm willing to get up and come to church tired. Because my Lord was willing to stay up late for me. Some of y'all got to get your priorities straight. You don't need prayer. Pray for me. You don't need prayer. You need priorities. And some of you, Joe's hot and heavy today. I'm not talking to you. If you think I'm talking to you, then I'm probably talking to you. You don't need prayer. You need priorities. If Tampa and Orlando and Jacksonville are all safe but church isn't, you don't need prayer. You need priorities. If every restaurant in South Florida is safe but church ain't safe, you don't need prayer. You need priorities. I'm calling you out. I will not pastor two churches. I will not pastor an online church and an in-person church. First Baptist Church of Cutler Ridge is one church. I'm calling on my people. I'm your pastor. I have this right and authority given to me by God. I'm calling on you. Get to church. Now, please note the same man who was so brave and courageous a moment ago in front of the soldiers to cut off the high priest's ear, Malchus, is now cussing and swearing, Mark's gospel says. I can cuss and swear pretty good. Amen? Amen is for you, by the way. I hope you've never heard me cuss and swear. We all get there. Amen? We've all said some words we shouldn't have said, and this is a fisherman, Peter. He goes, I know some words. I know some Greek words. I can use them. And he does. He says he swears, and he cusses. I don't know Jesus. That's where he gets. What's the difference? What's the difference between the Peter who was willing to pull out a dagger and cut off someone's ear and the Peter who's cussing at a young servant girl because he doesn't want to be identified as a disciple of Jesus? What's the difference? Well, for one, who knows what's happening exactly? Think about it. Who really knows what's happening? Peter doesn't. All Peter knows is that he wishes he was with Jesus. They took Jesus inside. John knows the servant girl, like, come inside. Let's try to stay close. Maybe we can figure out what's happening. Peter comes inside, but really they don't know. They don't know what's happening to Jesus. They're as curious as you and I are at this stage of the conversation. For another thing, when Peter was brave, Peter was close to Jesus. But now Jesus is gone and Peter is alone and Peter is faltering. Church, stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. He has our strength. And he has our courage. I want to say this to you. It's going to come up on the screen. You can write it down. Our focus affects our faith. 
Peter lost his focus for a minute. Our focus affects our faith. It's hard to follow Jesus when we're not focused on him. It's easy to fail Jesus when we're not focused on him. And what happens? Peter fails. He falters. His focus is on other things rather than on Jesus. His focus is on the question that he's getting rather than on Jesus. His focus is on the fact that he doesn't know what's happening to Jesus right now rather than all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus is. And so he denies him. And when he denies him, you know the story. The cock crows after the third denial and he remembers what the Lord said to him in Mark 14, 72. It says, Peter broke down and wept. Now before our final point, let me say that I'm grateful to the Spirit of God for having penned these words. So grateful. We learn a lot about Peter throughout the Gospels, don't we? He pops up a whole lot, but he's best known for denying Jesus three times. Amen? But I prefer to think of Peter as the guy who dropped his nets and followed Jesus. As the guy who said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. As the one who told Jesus, to whom shall we go? You've got the words of eternal life. As the one who wouldn't leave his side during his arrest because he loved him that much. As the one who was willing to pull a dagger for him in the face of threat and in the face of a fight to protect him. As the one who was not willing for him to go alone but followed him to the place where the Sanhedrin were trying him because he couldn't bear the thought of his Lord being alone. I know he failed. I know he faltered. But I prefer to see Peter in the overwhelming light of his faithfulness, not his failure. Christian, you may have faltered. Christian, you may have failed. But one mistake or sin doesn't define who you are in Christ. And someone may know you for that sin. It may be the only thing by which they know you. But if you're a Christian, my Father knows you in Christ. And that is the greatest thing by which we can be known. So we see the arrest, the denial. And we turn a corner now and we get to the examination. This would be Jesus before Pilate. This is the conclusion of the chapter. And of course, it's thick. It's 
tense, and it's so important. I'm going to read it very quickly. If you would look at verse 28 with me, it says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. By the way, this was a snarky remark. I don't know if you catch the tone of their remark here. They don't want to answer the question. We wouldn't have brought him if he didn't do something evil. That's what they're saying. Pilate said to them, take him for yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. You see, Rome had removed this right from every nation that it occupied. Pax Romana, the sword belonged to Rome alone. So the death penalty, which was often exercised by Rome, could only be exercised by Rome. So the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate because only Rome could do what they wanted done. Verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. Now, very quick, let's finish the chapter. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus said, You say that I am a king, and it's for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says, What is truth? And some people like him to say, What is truth? That's not what Pilate is. Pilate's going, What's truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews. He told them, I find no guilt in this man, but you have a custom that I should release someone for the Passover, so you want me to release him? The king of the Jews? They cried out, no, not this one. Release Barabbas. And then John says, now Barabbas was a robber. There's a definite article there in the Greek. It's sort of like if I were to say Ted Bundy. This is a name you recognize, right? He was so notoriously evil, you recognize his name, crack off the bat, right? It's the same situation here. The definite article is there. It reminds us that for John's audience, when he said Barabbas, they go, oh, we heard a lot about that guy. That's how bad Barabbas was. And the Jews are saying, no, 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 no. You can keep Jesus. Do what we're asking you to do. Release Barabbas. Oh, we get to the examination, the point when Jesus is face-to-face with Pilate. I'm going to try to move somewhat quickly through this point. This is the last step 
before his crucifixion. Pilate was the proconsul or prefect, governor essentially of Judea, for approximately 10 years, about 26 AD to 36 AD. So Jesus is right in the middle of this situation. His governance was rocky at best. In fact, Years later, a couple of years later, in 36 A.D., Caesar Tiberius would call, would recall uh, Pilate back to Rome because he just didn't do a good job. Jesus is brought to Pilate. It says at the Praetorium, which is the governor's residence, by the Jews under Caiaphas. It was early morning, which probably means about six. Of course, they don't escort Jesus into the governor's headquarters, however. It says it in the text. They don't escort Jesus into the governor's headquarters because they would be defiled by going into a Gentile's residence, and they didn't want to be defiled by going into a Gentile's residence because it's going to be Passover, and they want to be able to participate in Passover. Church, say amen if you're listening here. When you won't go into somebody's house because it will make you religiously dirty, but you're willing to guarantee their murder, your religion is vain. Pilate immediately tries to rid himself of the situation. He says, take him and judge him for yourself. I don't want anything to do with the situation, not because there's a guilty conscience involved, but because Pilate is indifferent. That's the first thing that I want you to note here. Pilate is seemingly indifferent to the situation. It's obvious from John's account, as well as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus is before Pilate as a so-called criminal, but Pilate is only accommodating this mob of Jews who are determined to make this scene and get away with it. You can even see it in Pilate's Pilate's final word in verse 35. I find no guilt in this man, but you have a custom to release somebody on Passover. So do you want him or do you want somebody else? No, we don't want this man. Give us Barabbas. I want you to see Pilate's indifference. But secondly, I also want you to see, more importantly, that Jesus never falters. Not even in the face of death, Jesus has Resolve. Amen? Pilate dismissively says, am I a Jew? Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your own chief priests have brought you here, man. Jesus responds, my kingdom is not of the world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. It was never a doubt. Never a doubt. They planned from long ago to rid the world of Jesus. There was a plot in place as early as John chapter 11. We're in 18. So if you rewind all the way back to the end of John chapter 11, you will see there the words, from that point forward, they began to plot to kill Jesus. Bruce Milne writes this, He who lived as the holy one dies as the condemned one. He who breathed as the guiltless expires as the guilty. Yet, strange as it may seem, this very fact is fundamental to God's purpose in the death of Jesus. But what they don't know or realize is that even before John 11... 
long before they conjured up this plan against Jesus, God had a plan too. You see, God's plan was from eternity past, not John 11. God's plan was from eternity past, and it wasn't for Jesus' downfall, but for Jesus' glorification. It wasn't for Jesus' guilty verdict, but for his justification. Pilate and this group of guilty Jews are simply the means by which the will of God is being accomplished in the world. Sure, they're guilty. But ultimately, it's according to God's purpose and plan. Everybody who knows me listens to the truth, Jesus says. Pilate says, well, what is truth? The essayist Francis Bacon wrote a famous essay on truth was the title. In it, he says, Pilate jested, what is truth? And then didn't bother to stay around for the answer. I wonder how many in our hearing today are interested in asking the question, what is truth, but aren't interested in staying around long enough for the answer. That's like a fad now. It's like a virus that we've caught, a virus of the mind. Everybody's interested in some kind of truth, your truth, my truth, their truth. This is not true for me, but it is true for you, etc., etc. Church, there is only one truth. All truth is God's truth. It is or it isn't. We can agree to disagree, but that does not create shades of black and white on truth. What is true is that Jesus is God's son going through what he is for the sake of sinners like you and me. Judas, Caiaphas, Pilate. Three men who all betrayed Jesus. Judas handed Jesus over to Caiaphas. Caiaphas handed Jesus over to Pilate. And Pilate hands Jesus over to the guards who would eventually crucify him. To close, however, this morning, my question is, what will we do with Jesus? Jesus.